Hi, I'm Afi. I'm August. I'm Jess. And I'm Carl. Welcome to The Periphery, a podcast about the biggest tech issues that we're grappling with as a society. We're finding new tools for understanding these complex debates at a time when there is so much at stake, so we can decide what technology should and could be for us. Before we get started, make sure to subscribe to our podcast on Patreon, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Um, Thanks for joining today's conversation on cloud computing, the revolutionary way that our personal data is being processed and stored. Tend to bring this up because, because oh, Microsoft boy. lost. Oh no! You've become a bona fide Microsoft booster since you said I do to their job offer. Booster is a strong word. It is not, Carl. <laughs> you, he, he just—he's not a booster. He just wears their gear every day. Oh, every day. Is today, awesome. today is one of those rare days when August is not wearing his Microsoft T-shirt. But then again, he is wearing a T-shirt underneath his sweater. Right. I guarantee which you, might it's be a the plain Microsoft shirt. Black Carl. T-shirt. That's not even the best way to cut to the point. August, what is your default browser? Okay, it's Microsoft Edge. Which and what is your default search engine? Actually. I changed back to Google. Back to Google from? Uh, From the other main competitor. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about the fact that Microsoft is no longer getting this $10 billion cloud contract. Yeah. Which is, well, as much as I would like to really call it a loss just because I feel like August needs, just needs a little bit of humility after he's on this Microsoft pedestal. (laughs) It's not really a loss. No, no. It's... Microsoft and Amazon were battling for 20 months um, over a contract with the Department of Defense to provide cloud computing services. Uh, Like all of us, like most major industries, the military needs cloud computing too. And so originally, Microsoft was awarded the contract, then they were awarded it again. But uh, there was contention on Amazon's part. Uh, There was contention over the procurement process, whether it was biased because the Trump administration doesn't like Jeff Bezos and doesn't like the Washington Post. But everyone knows, you know, it's really because Microsoft has the most secure cloud (laughs) because that's the only reason that these companies care about getting the contracts. Right. Now, if you're like me, you saw the $10 billion headline and thought that was huge which is probably why every article put it in the headline right. because I don't really know much about clouds. I don't mean, okay, I guess I know a lot about Microsoft, but that's a separate <laughs> issue. I know today is a lot to me, but when you read the articles, they're like, this is pennies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a prestige to being a patriotic company, <laughs> to uh, having a contract with the military. Then again, double-edged sword. Uh, I think it was last year or two years ago, Google employees walked out for, well, from a contract with the military. So. Sure. I think the prestige lies more in having the most secure cloud. Yes. And, and Jess, you know, how, you know how important this is. You've done some research. This is a pretty big industry. When you think about these cloud contracts, a big aspect of it is the international politics, too. Um, and there's this growing trend among governments to say that if you're going to host certain cloud computing databases in our jurisdiction, then our government gets certain access to your data. Um, There are obviously different levels of that. There's also, you know, this big movement in the EU to create a European cloud out of fear of domination in the Chinese and American markets. So 
These are complex issues outside of just American contracts. Exactly. I mean, just from a from the standpoint of information sharing, it would probably be the most efficient just to have one cloud and not to have all these uh, geopolitical clouds popping up all over the place. Are, are nation states kind of accepting those inefficiencies for the sake of security and other geopolitical interests, perhaps even privacy? Well, I mean, going, going to sovereignty, you know, Jess, is, Jess, you're absolutely right that where you put these massive data centers, which are very expensive, not only to build, but to maintain, um, that, is, that, that, that falls under different sovereign jurisdictions. And so the European Union, for example, will insist that uh, if you're processing European data subjects' information, uh, you need to abide by certain rules, and you certainly can't transfer them to different societies like the United States that has weaker privacy protections. Guys, we'll get high level. We can't get this into the weeds in the intro. (laughs) I think you're right. The main takeaway, I think, is that the cloud is going to be a trillion-dollar industry by 2026, which far surpasses even the most optimistic projections that any analysts could have made probably even five years ago. So today, lucky for us, we are actually speaking to someone who is the founder of a company named Cloudera. His name is Mike Olson. And speaking to him, I think we'll get a better understanding of what this what this thing is that we call the cloud. How did it originate? What is its trajectory? Where is it going? What are some of the risks relating to security and privacy? But also, what are some of the benefits Um, of this revolutionary technology that is creating value for people around the world. Long story short, we want to know where can the cloud go and where should we take it? Thank you so much for joining, Mike. Uh, you are founder, former CEO, and board man, chair member, or sorry, is it chairman? Chairman uh, of the board. Chairman of the board, uh, Cloudera, uh, pretty big, pretty well-known cloud computing company. Um, and we have some questions because we've done some research, primarily you, Jess. You've done a lot of research, Jess. <laughs> but we still have a lot of questions about what the cloud is, you know, where it can go, how should we think about it, and what, what the stakes are in for people who aren't necessarily technologists or don't even really know what the cloud is. So, I mean, what is it, Mike? (laughs) Let me dive in and actually let me back up a whole bunch of decades. So my very first job in the computer industry was working for a company in Kansas City, Missouri that sold time-sharing computer services. This is 77, 78. I was in high school. Um, And at the time, companies wanted computers to do some data processing or maybe payroll processing. They had specific jobs they wanted to run. Computers were super expensive, and they were also really finicky to run. So most businesses, rather than going buying their own computers, installing them, setting them up, running them, keeping them happy, would contract with a firm like United Computing Services to buy time on computers that those folks owned. And they'd connect over a modem or a dedicated line. And maybe for 15 or 20 minutes a day, if they were super technical, maybe for as much as an hour or two a day, they would use the computer at United Computing 
to run their jobs. In fact, they'd be able to share it. A lot of people could use it at the same time. What was, what, like, what did they need the computers for then? Because they didn't have, like, email. <laughs> well, so uh, one of our com- customers at United Computing was an engineering firm. Uh, someone wants to design a building, you've got to know how sturdy, how strong all of the supporting members need to be, how far apart they need to be, whole bunch of mathematics. You could do that with a calculator and a piece of paper, but you'd probably screw it up. You'd probably fat finger it. (laughs) Using computer programs was a much more predictable way to do that. So they would write their own computer programs and then run them on the UCS machines. Every business that was a customer had some specific application it needed to run, but didn't want the hassle of buying and running a general purpose computer besides. And so they would just buy time on the ones that we had. Wow. And so it sounds like that's computing in like the most literal sense. You needed, they needed you to do complex calculations to figure out complex math, like you said. Uh, I'm wondering, how long did that industry last? Did you see it grow and... Eventually, of course, it was disrupted by personal computing. Well, yeah. My answer is, really, it lasted forever. Um, It ebbed and flowed over time. My contention is that the move to the cloud is kind of a move back to the philosophy of those timeshare days, right? Buying and running computers is hard and finicky. Securing them is difficult, and the bad guys are clever. Why not find somebody who can do that for you? In the 80s and 90s, Companies like Sun Microsystems and IBM and uh, Microsoft and others began to offer computers and computer programs that were way less complicated. And most companies were able to afford and operate these computers on their own. And so they built their own data centers and they stopped using the timeshare services and started using their own. Um, That was decades of the industry. Um, Through the 90s and into the early zeros, Most companies had their own data centers and ran their own computer programs. In 2006, Amazon, which had up to then been just uh, an e-commerce company, a bookstore and then a general purpose e-commerce company, announced two novel services. The uh, simple storage service, S3, storage online, uh, and their Elastic Compute, uh, EC2. When was this? 2006. So think about it. It's kind of like predating the like AWS like of today. These were the very two first AWS offerings. Amazon Web Services, sorry. Amazon Web (laughs) Services is now hundreds of different services. S3 and EC2 remain. But those were very interesting novel services. At the time, most of us had wired telephones in our house, and you could plug a cable into the wall and get dial tone. The analog, at least in my view, from Amazon was being able to just connect to this internet service and get data tone. I could get a computer whenever I wanted it. I could get as much storage as I needed. I didn't have to plan ahead and buy disks and make room for them. I could just buy that stuff. Amazon pioneered the cloud. Uh, Of course, they were followed by a whole bunch of other very great vendors who offer their services as well. But the growth of those services turned into what we now know as the cloud. So this term of the cloud, I mean, I think it's used in a lot of different contexts now, but back then, my understanding is it sort of became used as a term to describe like this empty space, this unseeable space between point A and B, where you've got the data center that's either hosting the running of the program or maybe hosting the data storage, and then point B being like the user experience. Is that, is that right? Is that what the cloud means? Fair summary. Basically, um, 
The reason that EC2 and S3, the reason the compute and storage made sense to offer, was it saved me, just an ordinary guy living in my house with my kids in Berkeley, saved me the trouble of needing to go buy a whole bunch of disks or buy computers that I would use for specific things. But it was still kind of hard to use, right? I had to go configure the compute instances in the Amazon cloud, be sure I got the right one, spin them up, spin them down. Uh, you didn't want to leave them running because the meter just turned over. It was sort of like leaving your oven on when you went away for vacation. Um, there was a lot of complexity in it. As Amazon rolled out more services, there were more things I would need to configure. They built, and the other cloud providers likewise had built, a sort of ease of use. And integration, administration overhead has been taken away. They do those things now so that I don't need to worry about it. No doubt we're going to talk later on about security and privacy. Um, Securing your data, making sure you don't have any backdoors into your system is both imperative and surprisingly difficult. If I can rely on a cloud vendor who's got a lot of money to spend on those services and is going to be really expert, probably better than me doing it on my own. I'm likely to get it wrong and get penetrated, whereas the cloud vendors are able to offer much more secure services. I see. On like uh, on the on the document, like when we're preparing this episode, you like were mentioning flexibility. It's like the main value add that cloud computing gives these companies. It's like part of that flexibility where they don't have as much flexibility to just kind of make a business choice on a whim <laughs> because of the other considerate logistics that the cloud vendors kind of take out. Is that the primary benefit? Is just the flexibility? Uh, if take all, all the pieces away, it's still useful for its flexibility. I'm just kind of curious, you know, if I can do this myself and I'll simply make it cheaper over time, <laughs> where is the genuine benefit? Yeah, so... Um I absolutely don't want to minimize the claims I just made about security and configuration and operations. All of that stuff is hard work, and the cloud vendors are really good at it. So offloading that work to those folks makes huge sense to me. But flexibility is a really big deal. Imagine I've got an idea for my business. Uh, I think if I can build some new software, I can measure how customers interact with my online services, uh, and I can direct much better offers at them. I can give them more of what they want better, right? But, but that's just my idea. I don't really know if that's the case. If I got to walk down the hall and talk to the CIO or the CFO and ask for 15 computers that I can put into our data center in order to run this experiment, it's going to be a tough conversation, right? <laughs> even if they say yes, even if they agree they're going to buy them and then, you know, if my experiment fails, then they're just going to get mothballed. Even if they agree to that, I'm going to have to call up Dell or Supermicro. I'm going to have to order the machines. It's going to take a month or two for them to show up because, of course, there's all kinds of supply chain problems. When they get delivered to my loading dock, it's going to be a bunch of boxes. I'm going to have to have a whole bunch of IT staff go rack and stack and cable those things up. We're going to have to be sure we got enough electricity flowing into the room. It's going to generate a bunch more heat. Do I have enough AC? I mean, if I have to plan, if I have to deal with all of that just in order You're to run my little experiment, <laughs> I ain't going to do it. Right, right. right. If, if I can just go touch the Microsoft, Microsoft Azure button, mm-hmm. right, and get the 15 servers I need and use them for a week and a half and spin them down with no muss, no fuss, and no obligation to get rid of the boxes at the end, I'm going to do those experiments a lot more. That flexibility is absolutely huge. Mm. And, and that efficiency, you know, you overcame through uh, these services – uh, a lot of that capital-intensive requirement of setting up your own data center, uh, running that experiment. And also also sounds like you're contracting out cons- uh, security as well, that they would handle all of those uh, 
the, the complexities of keeping your data secure? Yeah. Um, if I'm running computer services, I still need to think about security. How do I protect my passwords? When I hire and fire someone, do I give them and then revoke their access to my systems and so on? But baseline security is the very latest version of the kernel and the, the operating system and all of the key utilities. Is all of that stuff installed? And is somebody monitoring the network, looking for people that are trying to get in and noticing when that happens and shutting down those accesses? Again, super complicated, something I'm likely to mess up because I'm not a specialist. I'd much rather staff that out to somebody who does nothing but that every single day. And all of the cloud vendors offer remarkably good security services. Right. But if you're, if you're a cloud vendor and you're managing the data from all the hundreds of companies that are using your service, surely doesn't the job of keeping all that secure, you know, maybe multiply many times? Um, their problem is really that they are very big targets because of the volume of data that they have. I would argue that it's not multiplicative, it's not even additive, right? If you've got to secure your systems, you fundamentally need to secure them. But adding one or two new customers doesn't make it fundamentally harder to secure. You know, your first hundred, your first thousand, maybe your first million customers are hard. But after that, the incremental cost of making sure you stay secure as you basically deploy new hardware, doesn't get worse. Right. Um, but it becomes an attractive target is what you're saying, it seems. Indeed. Everybody wants to break into, you know, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Why do you <laughs> right. attack a cloud vendor? Because if you get in, that's where the data is. Well, oh, well, you know, let's talk about privacy and security then, because obviously, you know, that's what got us into this whole tech conversation in the first place uh, to here at the periphery. With all the innovation that we start, have studied recently and are talking about with um, all of our guests, those trade-offs uh, that a lot of our great and novel innovations give us. And it sounds, uh, I just know personally, and maybe a lot of us, we have a lot of our data given to different cloud vendors. <laughs> and we it's very clear on the ownership of that data. It's very unclear on, like August said, how, how exactly secure it is. You know, I'm a bit, I'm curious, how are they able to give this promise of endless, you know, cloud computing with... <laughs> And, and, and maintain, you know, the talent and people in-house to keep it as secure as possible. What are the privacy and security risks or for this flexibility that, yeah, I'm just kind of curious, uh, how bad is it that all of my data is ostensibly accessible from two or three <laughs> vendors? <laughs> um, I'm going to answer the question in a couple of different ways. So the first thing I want to talk about is, look, there is just some gritty technical work you need to do if you're going to be sure that your systems are secured. Um, and a lot hackers, of liability you take on, too. <laughs> well, I want to come to that. That's an important point. But hackers are trying to break into systems all the time. Uh, it's a very clever constituency. Um, and as vendors release new code and that gets deployed in the cloud, that uh, opens opportunities for basically new vulnerabilities. So, you know, there's a big attack surface if you're running a lot of software at massive scale, right? Um, the cloud vendors are able to spend very much, uh, the cloud vendors are able to spend a lot of money to solve that problem, hire the very best people, send them to the conferences that, that they're going to learn the most at, educate them continually, and to work very closely with the software vendors to secure that stuff. So it's not a small problem. Uh, it's, not, it's not a solved problem. There are vulnerabilities in all of the software. But my point of view 
is that Amazon, Microsoft, Google do a much better job of that than the local credit union is going to be able to do, right? Um, but then there's this other philosophical question. So you and I, all of us, all four of us, we've got an enormous amount of personal data about us that we just sort of glibly store in the cloud. <laughs> yes. and, and most of us don't even know what that means. Like, which cloud? I drove down here from Berkeley to Palo Alto, uh, and I have a fast track transponder in my car. The reason I like that transponder it lets me blow right through the uh, toll booths on the bridges, right? But it turns out there are transponder readers buried in the road. So when you see the signs on the side of the highway that tells you how long the driving time is from uh, Burlingame to Oakland, the reason they know that is they're watching the cars go by with the transponders in them all the time. Oh yeah, no, nobody does. The convenience of blowing through the bridges and the convenience of knowing how long the drive is going to be has totally inured us. We didn't even ask the question of should that data be collected? Should it be kept? Where and how long? Who has that? Is it like the government or? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know what the storage uh, philosophy is there. Mm. And but the government would contract out a cloud provider perhaps to store that data anyway, even if they're the ones who... Almost certainly uh, the state of California is not running that infrastructure. It's working with some third-party vendor that provides that service. And then you've got to ask, yeah. where are their security, <laughs> where is their data stored, and so on. When I worked in City Hall in San Diego, it was like a really big story when the city, I think the, the police department started like a contracting with a, a data a data company, a cloud computing company <laughs> for like some of the data they were collect that was being collected from the traffic lights yeah. on on I don't know what the data was and where it's going, <laughs> but they were collect it's certainly valuable. <laughs> well almost certainly that was uh, traffic cameras. So photographing people that were running red lights. Those cameras now are pretty widely deployed uh, in Berkeley. All of the uh, all of the traffic and all of the parking enforcement uh, little cars have cameras on them and are able to roll along reading every single license plate they go by. That that data gets uploaded to a third party vendor, who actually keeps it for a year. Now look, it's useful for the police because if you're a scofflaw and you got a whole bunch of tickets and you're parked somewhere and they'd like to boot your car. Right. That, that's a perfectly legitimate enforcement job. Right. But if I'm legally parked, why should my parking? Why should my license plate be saved? For well, you have you? nothing to hide, <laughs> as they like to say. But but if you had all that data, you could start to notice who frequented what areas by what license plates were where you could notice. Perhaps Afi and I are commonly near the same coffee shop regularly. Perhaps you could start to know who I'm associating with. If you were a stalker, that'd be great data to break in and get because you'd be able to target whoever your stalking target was. Anyway, there, there are a lot of ethical questions around that data. We need to ask those questions. As a society, I don't think we do a good enough job at it yet. I do think that Again, for the big three cloud providers, uh, Amazon and uh, Microsoft and Google, actually I'll add Apple, um, at least their policies on data retention and access are pretty well spelled out. Um, and I think this topic is worth exploring a little more for those four in particular. But but let me pause because I've kind of rambled on for a while now. Any questions on this stuff? No, I'm just, I'm just eating it up. This is, I'm learning a lot right now. <laughs>
you know, you know, Mike certainly gave us nothing but questions to ask, and that's kind of the good news because that means there's a ton of opportunity for people who haven't really had a say to have a say. You know, so many times I, I think I remember when I started coming into tech. I was thinking a lot about first movers and how when you set a precedent, it's much harder to reform it than it is to just be the first mover. So I'm kind of encouraged to hear Mike not have a lot of answers to some of the bigger problems that we find with cloud computing because it means that there's this opportunity for people like me and people like you all to figure out what we want and then demand it um, before anyone else realizes what there is there to demand. Yeah, and I was really just on that point, Afi, I was really struck by his philosophical point about how we're not thinking that much about all the data, the data of our lives that we're just handing over to these large, you know, massive, uh, concentrated service providers. And it's a question that we need to talk about more. And as a society, we're not very good at that. And in many ways, I feel like that's this this podcast. We're figuring out how to converse about that, how to make that conversation broad. And so a lot of the questions that he left us with, I feel like we're answering right now. So I have a question for the periphery. What, What aren't we comfortable with? What is the line and what is the balance at least in you all, and you are uh, very, I won't say rudimentary, but not not credibly in-depth uh, perspectives. What, what, what are you all comfortable with? Uh, are you all comfortable with for defenders having our data? Is it, what, what should we be working towards? Because- I mean, I think in some ways it's inevitable that these vendors are going to have our data as more things move onto the cloud. So in some ways it's a question, I mean, of course, I think we can have the conversation about what data should be on you know on the cloud but i think the conversation probably more realistically will be about how secure is that data so it's cybersecurity and who has access to that data and how much control do we actually have over that data right i think control is huge i mean i think that when you get large swaths of data it can be really helpful in a lot of ways i think in the healthcare industry specifically with COVID, it was a big help to have information about people's health status. And that data was anonymized. So I think that that was done, uh, at least in certain spheres, in the right way. And even then, there was controversy over who owned that data. Was it states or the federal government? And that had a lot of different implications for people who, for instance, were in, uh, what do they call it, safe haven cities for immigrants uh, versus, you know, states a bit more friendly with uh, uh, a bit less friendly to immigrants who do not have proper documentation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when Mike talked about, um, for example, the right to forget and how the right to forget isn't really a right to forget because they can't forget that you chose to be forgotten. Mm-hmm. I- I'd prefer that over not having that choice, right? Over not having the ability to say, I want you to forget about me and I want you to stop sharing my information with third-party vendors. And I think back to the way that the early, early cloud computing, you know, those precursors to AWS that he mentioned, um, how those helped him in his business, how he was able to run experiments that he never would have had the capital or there were too many barriers to ever run. And the way that it, it must have helped thousands, millions of people to start businesses, to come up with new ideas, uh, to become productive and, um, and, to, and to make their, their visions into reality. And I, I have to consider that you know, really, really closely when I think about all the risks as well, because he mentioned that scale the, cl- the attack surface, uh, the fact that th- when it comes to security in these large cloud providers, it's not multiplicative, it's not even additive, but it's the fact that there's this huge incentive uh, for 
for for threat actors to to target these giant gold mines. He compared them to banks um, of data. That's, I think, the new concern. How do we keep, what are the cyber equivalents of security guards? I think my main takeaway here for us on the periphery now is, you know, our data is going to be on the cloud. And I actually think that we can reap a lot of benefits in productivity and other spheres of our data being on the cloud. But if we're aware that we are transferring that data to the cloud, I think that is a that is a huge step. And then we can actually participate in the conversation to kind of shape the terms on which our data will be on the cloud. And I think that is really the crucial thing. And that is the conversation that we need to have. If I may make maybe somewhat of a stretch of an analogy, I've recently, I think gymnastics has been in the conversation a lot in the Olympics, particularly because of Simone Biles. And it honestly really made me push my thoughts on this balance that we're talking about. We're talking about a balance of innovation and efficiency and flexibility for some pretty incredible things. At the same time, we have acquiesced a lot of our privacy to um, and a lot of access to our personal cells to, you know, four or five people who, you know, benevolently choose what happens with our data. And in gymnastics, they have banned a lot of different moves that some people are skilled enough to do that make it difficult to really assess who's the greatest of all time because a lot of athletes, a lot of moves have been banned because they possess such a risk to these athletes that it's not really worth figuring out what the best is or who the best is because it's not worth the championship to die. Uh, It's kind of this value that gymnastics has made. And it was pretty interesting to me because it didn't seem like one that is frequently made. They've really cut back on what could be for what their values were for their athletes. I don't know if this is making sense, but it really made me think about the balance and values that we have in our tech conversation where maybe we do need to talk about the fact that, you know, maybe it's not killing us, but it's having such bad social implications that um, it's worth having the conversation of where we actually draw the line and stop because, and looking to maybe not just tech to find that answer. Cause I thought it was very interesting that gymnastics was able to find the line of given how dangerous all the things they do of what was too much, uh, what was too much to handle for all the good that the sport presents. So, yeah, I think that's an apt um, analogy. And to, uh, I think the aspect about politics was interesting, international politics, I mean, when you talk about government contracts with cloud computing, it really makes you think about what's prioritized um, from a company's perspective when they're building out cloud computing and when they're determining consumer rights. Maybe it's the United States place on the global stage. Um, And without the conversation happening here at home, that's really all they can take into account at this point. So maybe with more conversations like this, our policy will get a bit more nuanced, but that's something to consider too. I mean, the way that we decide how information will be stored here is going to affect our place in the world at large. Well, I think we've at the very least started to get a handle on the cloud. At least we started the conversation. And most importantly, we hope we have provoked you to join the conversation. Uh, And we hope you do that by subscribing, liking, telling your friends. Uh, Most principally, maybe talking to someone who you haven't had this type of conversation with and asking them what they think. Uh, And coming back and letting us know in the comments or if you run into us on campus, we'd love to hear your thoughts because what are we without the periphery? (laughs) Thanks for tuning in.